I'm Karen. And I'm Michelle. We're sisters. And homeschool moms. Welcome to the Layers of Learning podcast. Where we talk about family-style homeschooling. Hi, welcome to the podcast today. I am Karen from Layers of Learning, and I'm here with my sister, Michelle. Hi, it's good to be here. So today we're talking about diving deep into history. You can approach history kind of two overarching ways. You can either just sort of read the surface and skim a little bit and pick up bits and pieces here and there, or you can really dive in deep and understand what's going on with people and cultures and places and times all through history. So we're hopefully today going to direct you on how to dive a little deeper than maybe you're used to. And we're going to be using a metaphor of diving, like scuba diving. So Karen has been scuba diving, and so she is going to be giving most of the examples of that and how that is going to relate to reading and learning in history. So quite a few years ago, my husband and I got scuba certified. We've been diving for quite a number of years, and it's something that we really, really enjoy. And it has been amazing to me because I've been a water bug my whole life. Like Michelle and I, we grew up with a dad that absolutely loves boating. We water ski, we swim, we love the water. Every single summer we spend yeah. at the lake pretty much. Yeah. And for a lot of my life, that was my experience with the water. I, the surface. I lived on the surface. <laughs> yeah. And it was a completely different world when I began scuba diving. It changed my whole perspective. And so... As I learned to dive, I discovered some real truths about what happens when you dive deep and how that changes your worldview of things. So even when I first began scuba diving, I just dove on the surface. I mean, really literally, I learned in a swimming pool. It was a swimming pool that even without scuba gear, I could have submerged myself all the way to the bottom of. I'm not sure how deep it was, but probably... 10 feet, 12 feet? I think it was like 15. It was a pretty, it had a high dive. Okay. So it was like a 15 to 20 foot pool, but that's not so deep that I can't, you know, you go can, off of the high dive and dive yeah, down. Yeah, you can dive down it without scuba gear. Right. So that was really surface level diving. And my first, quite a few dives were just in that swimming pool where I was learning skills. So when you dive just at a surface level, you're really only seeing a tiny percentage of what it's like under the water. And that's true even if you're in a lake or the ocean and not a swimming pool. Like when you're on the surface, all you see is a little bit. It's just a tiny piece. Tiny, tiny little percentage of what's there. So this can happen to us when we're learning about history. And it's a pitfall of history that we will see a tiny little piece of what is happening in with a historical character or a historical time period or an event in history and we'll think maybe that we actually know what's going on. We believe that we have seen it all. But we're just at the surface. We're seeing a tiny little percentage of the truth of what happened in history. Here's an example that's been cruising around the internet for a few years now. You'll see this quote from Christopher Columbus and this is something that he did write in a letter to Juana de la Torres. And he said, for one woman, they give a hundred castellanos as for a farm. And this sort of trading is very common. And there are already a great number of merchants who go in search of girls. There are at this moment some nine or ten on sale. They fetch a good price. Let their age be what it will. So from that quote, it sounds like Christopher Columbus is condoning and participating in 
a slave trade of young women. And if you only read that quote, that's what you believe about Christopher Columbus. That's what, that's the way you see him. That is your little surface level view of Christopher Columbus, right? The totality of who he was is ending up based on that quote, which is an accurate quote. Yeah, he did say that. Okay. So if we put that quote in context, though, in other words, if we go back and look at the entire letter that he wrote, a different picture emerges. And this is a little bit long, so bear with me. But he said, it would be well to send people from Spain and only to send such as are well known that the country may be peopled with honest men. I had agreed with these settlers that they should pay the third of the gold and of the tithes, and this they not only assented to, but were very grateful to their highnesses. I reproached them when I heard that they had afterward refused it. They expected, however, to deal with me on the same terms as with the commander, but I would not consent to it. He meanwhile irritated them against me, saying that I wished to deprive them of that which their highnesses had given them, and strove to make me appear their enemy, in which he succeeded to the full. Now that so much gold is found, these people, the above-mentioned settlers, stop to consider whether they can obtain the greatest quantity of it by theft or by going to the mines. For one woman, they give a hundred castellanos as for a farm, and this sort of trading is very common, and there are already a great number of merchants who go in search of girls. There are at this moment some nine or ten on sale. They fetch a good price, let their age be what it will. So he was actually describing how reprehensible that practice was. He was not saying that he condoned it. Or that he participated in it. Right. And there were mistakes that Christopher Columbus made. But when that quote is taken at a surface level out of context, it's actually painting a really inaccurate picture of what his opinion was about that issue. Yeah, his actual opinion was, we need to search hard and find honest men to go to the new world so we can stop this. Mm -hmm. That was actually his real opinion. It can be a little bit dangerous to just stay on the surface in a sense because you don't know what is lurking beneath. It could be much better than you thought or it could be much worse than you thought depending on what you're talking about. Now, as you dive deeper into a character like Columbus, you are going to find ways that he was not so perfect. And this is especially true when we hold Columbus to the standards that we accept today as being morally correct. So he said... In conclusion, and to speak only of what I have performed, this voyage so hastily dispatched will, as their highnesses may see, enable any desirable quantity of gold to be obtained by a very small assistance afforded me on their part. At present there are within reach spices and cotton to as great an amount as they can desire, aloe in a great abundance, an equal store of mastic, a production nowhere else found except in Greece and the island of Sio, where it is sold at such a price as the possessors choose. To these may be added slaves, as numerous as may be wished for. Besides, I have, as I think, discovered rhubarb and cinnamon, and expect countless other things of value will be found by the men whom I left there. So Columbus is listing slaves among the other valuable commodities that he has found in the Americas, which he believed to be the Far East. But he's also making assumptions that he has every right to take anything that he finds. Right. So there's nothing wrong with us looking at all of the different sides of Columbus and seeing the ways that he was admirable and the ways that we don't admire him, the things that he did wrong. But it's really, really dangerous when we only dive at a surface level and then we assume that we know everything 
about a historical person, event, anything like that. So I think the best way to avoid that is, first of all, to just be widely read in general. The more you read, the more context you have about history, about cultures, about the way people have been throughout all time, the more you are able to spot when something doesn't seem quite right. Or when, you know, you may already have some background information that would shed light on a quote that you see online or in a book. It's really interesting to me when I just go ahead and read, in particular, an online article. I'll read an online article about something and I feel like, I'm an expert. <laughs> and then if I go and I get 10 more books on the subject, I discover, oh, I was not an expert at all. You didn't I'm starting... know anything. And some of the stuff you thought you knew was actually not even right. Taking, yeah. out, taken out of context mm -hmm. or things like that. And so I've discovered the easiest way to dive deep into history is to just read from a big variety of sources so that you can make comparisons between them and really examine what each one is saying, you'll usually find truth where they overlap. Yes, I find that too. And I also think the more you read, the more it more easy it is to sift out. You can spot when authors are skewing things for their own ends. Or you have read that the full quote in another book, and this one only gives you a little tiny piece of it. You know, you, you start to spot those things. You spot inconsistencies. You spot places where authors are biased, and you can see that because you have read widely lots of sources. It also helps me if I recognize anytime I can get my hands on a primary source, that's really invaluable. Because, for example, like these Christopher Columbus quotes, they all come from primary sources. And they're available online. They're easy to get. You can you can go back to and read Christopher Columbus's logs and his letters, and you can find these sources in books and online. And he wasn't really shy about saying what he did. He described things pretty thoroughly, the things that we find admirable and the things that we find reprehensible. He described them in his own words, and you can really get a sense for what his intent was when you read it in his words. And that's true of all kinds of primary sources. It helps us to see from their point of view and their experience and their perspective, something that's nearly impossible for us to understand otherwise, because we've never lived their life. Right. You weren't alive in 1400 Spain, living in that kind of culture with those kinds of pressures among those kinds of people. And so if you read Christopher Columbus's actual words, it starts to shed light on how he saw the world. And that really helps you understand his motivations, which I think matters. And I will say this, when I'm diving and I recognize that I'm seeing a tiny little percentage of the ocean that I'm diving in, even when I dive deep, I'm only seeing a little bit. So let's say that you read 10 books about Christopher Columbus. You do need to recognize that even though you're a lot deeper than you were when you were just on the absolute surface, there's still a lot of unknowns there. We need to recognize that we don't know everything about every situation, even if we've read the 10 books. In many cases, no one knows because those people aren't alive anymore and you can't ever fully understand what it's like to be them in their world. That doesn't mean we can't take lessons from what we read, but we do need to understand the limitations that apply to the research that we're doing. So Christopher Columbus is very controversial, especially in 
the United States, but probably in lots of places. Every October, we have Columbus Day that we celebrate here. And a lot of people have decided they really hate that for various reasons. They have started calling it Indigenous Peoples Day or just not celebrating at all or, you know, something along those lines. One of the reasons that it's become so controversial is because for a lot of years, Christopher Columbus was held up as an absolute hero. And the truth is that he did some heroic things and he did some things that are not heroic, that we find offensive. And when we ask you to dive deep into a topic, what we're saying is that this may not determine whether or not you celebrate Columbus Day or not, but it's important to not just take a little sound bite of something and think that we are all of a sudden an expert on it. We can actually have far greater understanding. We can learn a lot more from the history lesson if we're willing to dig deeper than making a quick judgment call. I think that that's actually the point of studying history is to find out what went wrong and what went right. It will be a lot more valuable instead of just saying, he's a hero or he's trash to actually look at the specific things that are heroic in a person, the specific things that are reprehensible in a person, or in a story or a situation or anything. When we're looking at history, we do want to learn from it. But it's far too easy for us to scratch the surface, find a lesson and say, I'm enlightened. It's a lot more valuable if we're willing to really dig deep and find out more. And I think if you're digging deep into anyone's past, you're going to find out they weren't that good a person, at least not all the time. There aren't any heroes, if you want to look at it that way. And yet, we need heroes. We need people to look up to. And so it's important to also look for those good things. And especially when children are young, you're probably going to focus on just the good things. And then as they grow older, when they're in high school, that's when you really need to be diving deeply, reading widely with them, helping them to see, okay, this person did all these great things, but they also had this dark side. And, and you know, we're talking about Columbus, but there's other people, that, anyone from history. Mm -hmm. You can pick anybody. And that's true. And so it's important because we can see that, oh, even though I'm not perfect, I can still do great things. You know, I think, I think we need to have that little piece of hope. Find the little lessons when you dive deep instead of trying to evaluate the totality of a person or an event by something that they did or something that occurred. Yeah, or just one quote that you read somewhere. That's important to really get out of that surface so you can see a little bit further, but realize you're still not seeing everything no matter how deep you go. Yeah. So when I began learning to scuba dive, I mentioned that I started in a swimming pool. And for quite a long time, that was the location that I dove in. And as I learned, I was really, really comfortable in that swimming pool because it was safe. It was easy. It didn't feel really dangerous to me. And sometimes when we start researching, that's what we do. We stick to one location, one point of view in our research. Or one source, one aspect of a topic. We, we're sticking in that one space. So I remember as I began to learn about slavery, in my education, my definition of slavery for a long time was that that was an institution in the southern states in the United States of America, and I learned that it was a very wrong thing that resonated in me, and I felt very strongly about it, 
And I still don't admire slavery in any definition. But over time, I have come to see that I only learned it from one point of view early on in my education. And as you branch out into other areas, it can actually, it's kind of safe to stay in that one spot. Your one view of slavery, you've got it set, you're, you know what you believe, and you don't really want that shaken at all. I remember the first time I found out that slavery was actually normal throughout all of human history among almost every culture that it had taken place through all time. I was floored. I didn't realize that that was actually normal for the world. Well, it feels shocking to us because that's not normal for us right now. It's reprehensible. But truthfully, slavery has been an institution across so many cultures and so many time periods. It's been more common than not. Another thing that that really rocked me was when I found out that slavery is not a thing of the past. Growing up in school, it had been like slavery was abolished. And I thought, well, it's over. Turns out it's not. Even in the United States, it's not. It's gone underground. But all over the world, people are still enslaved. And that floored me too. And so in a way, these things, these new discoveries made me very uncomfortable. It didn't feel safe. My world is not so cut and dried. It's a lot harder to deal with some of these issues. So I will say when I was scuba diving and I went from the swimming pool out to my first open water dive, my first open water dive, I was diving with sharks and it was scary. That sounds scary. It was scary. They weren't scary sharks, but it still felt the scary. word sharks. They were scary. nurse sharks, which are the most gentle of the sharks. But still, I was kind of, ah, and that's how it can feel. When you begin to look at history from many points of view, when you open up your mind and see that it's not quite as cut and dried as you once thought, you feel like you're swimming amid sharks. A few months ago, I started learning about Harriet Tubman, and it began with me reading a little article online. And I've known about Harriet Tubman since I was a little girl, but I started this little bit of research, and I really think that the first exposure was probably like a biography.com type website article that I read. And then I clicked on some more links and I read some more. And then I got on my library website and I checked out a whole bunch of books on Harriet Tubman. And I probably read 10 or 12 books about her. And if you're, if you're not from the United States, you may not know who she is. She was a woman who was enslaved in the Southern United States before the Civil War. And she spent her time, she escaped, and then she spent her time helping other people escape. And then during the Civil War, she helped the North in some of their operations and things. She, she became a spy. She was a spy yeah. for the Northern Union armies in a continual pursuit to defeat slavery. Right. And it was her lifelong pursuit. And she actually did some other things even after that, too, that are really interesting she, to get she into. She was amazing. Yeah. But it was really shocking to me as I read, you know, the eighth, ninth, tenth book about her that I had checked out from the library some of the time I felt like I was swimming with sharks. I thought, how could I have learned about this woman throughout my whole life? And I didn't understand all of this. I didn't know all of this. So when we change and we learn from a lot of different points of view, it can feel a little uncomfortable. And especially because I had to admit how little I knew. I think it's also uncomfortable sometimes to realize that the world was worse than you ever thought it was. And that in some ways it still is. 
And we haven't gotten rid of all of the attitudes that caused the problem in the first place. You know, that can be difficult because when the more you know about a subject and the more angles you come at it from, more of those points of view, the more you begin to see yourself and your own culture in the things that you're reading about the past. One of the interesting things that I learned about Harriet Tubman throughout my reading was how members of her family actually didn't support her helping slaves to escape. Some of them even had the opportunity to escape with her and chose not to. They said they would rather be a slave. There were things like that that I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) I thought that all of the slaves were trying to escape. I saw all of the issue from one point of view. And it was just a little bit shaking to me to swim with the sharks and to go, oh, hold on. Not everything that I believed was exactly what happened. It didn't mean that those people were villainous. Truthfully, many of her family that that happened to, they were more afraid than anything. But it's just interesting how as you change your scope of research, how you start to see things from other points of view. I started to ask myself, what would I have done? Would I have been brave enough to escape? Would I have been brave enough to go back into that land and help others escape? Do I even have that kind of courage? If Harriet Tubman had been caught, she was notorious. Okay, she was notorious. If she had been caught, she would have been killed. There is no question. Definitely. It was just really enlightening for me to see her story from so many different angles. And it changed so much of what I believed about history when I did that. It's interesting, too, you know, other aspects of of slavery in the United States. I remember learning that there were blacks who owned other blacks in the United States. And I was like, what? You know, that happened, but it did. And then also when you learn things like that, the number, the percentage of slave owners in the South was actually low compared to the whole population. Most Southerners did not own slaves. In fact, most white Southerners, their condition was very similar to slaves. They weren't enslaved, but they were in absolute poverty. So they couldn't read, they had no transportation, they had no hope of bettering themselves. So it was a lot of times we don't see the whole picture until we've really gotten in a little deeper and read more widely on sources and and read more points of view. So often the history is painted in a very safe and easy sort of a way, just like the swimming pool. It's a lot harder to go swim among the sharks, but I'll tell you what, it really changes your whole perspective of how you'll study history when you stop being afraid to get out of the pool and go into deeper waters. By the time, Karen, that you were done with your that dive with the sharks, were you still afraid of them? No, I was excited. Isn't that interesting? I think that I felt that same way when I've learned about history. Like at first it's shocking and it's frightening, but then the more you learn, the more you're like, I, I get elated by the things I learned in history. I really love history. You know what's really interesting about that dive? As you asked that question, I was like, huh. One of the things that happened during it, I knew there were sharks in there. And I had felt afraid. And then it was really exciting to see them. But as I was swimming, all of a sudden, a stingray swam by me. They're actually more dangerous. It was more dangerous than the nurse shark. And I didn't even know they were there. They didn't warn us about that. And all of a sudden, there was a stingray. And that's kind of the same, like encountering many points of view means you're going to encounter things that you don't expect. And you're going to have to deal with the things that you encounter in your historical studies. But all of it's going to create a bigger, fuller understanding of the picture of where you are. 
And it's a really good idea to help your kids through these kinds of encounters while they're still in your homeschool. And we're talking high school age here, not not six-year-olds. Don't right? throw your six-year-old in with the sharks. Right. No. <laughs> so, but your high schoolers, they should be, you know, pick, pick a subject that has caught your attention or something that's controversial. And with your high schoolers, dive a little deeper, head into a different pool, you know, head out into the ocean and, and find some of those more interesting sources and more deep sources. I learned another really important lesson when I was learning to scuba dive. My husband and I, we did this together and we were really, really anxious to go start diving around the world. And it was really interesting as we were looking for dive spots, how many times we saw advertisements for things that said, learn to dive in a day. And we were already scuba certified, but we had been warned about these learn to dive in a day type classes because the people who taught them at these popular dive spots around the world, oftentimes they weren't even scuba certified. They didn't necessarily enforce the proper safety rules or, you know, the partner dive experiences that you're supposed to have. Their equipment may not have been standard. Right. Right. So they were actually not really the right way to approach diving if you wanted to do it from a proper and safe way. So researching history can be a lot like that too. People promise all kinds of information to us, you know, in books, on websites, in movies, we're promised all sorts of information, but we need to be a little bit skeptical of authors and sources and what exactly it is that we're getting our information from. I, I actually tend to think we need to be a lot skeptical. I, I'm a naturally skeptical person. And so this tends to be easy for me. It's part of my personality type. I, I listen to someone talking and I'm like, yeah, I don't believe you, but <laughs> that's kind of me. But I think you can practice skepticism and in, in the realm of history in particular, it can be a very healthy thing to have because so many people, in fact, everyone has a bias. We all have an agenda of some kind. Some people have a much more pronounced one than others. Some people are making an effort to be honest while others are making an effort to convince you of something. Mm -hmm. So being able to spot that is important. And I think you do that through practice. So every time that you read something, you come across that quote online or you read something in the newspaper or you read an article or you read the one book you need to think, I wonder if that's really true. Or I wonder if that's the whole picture. If that's the whole picture. Yeah. Often people share parts of truths, but not full entire truths. And sometimes that's just a side effect of the format. Like a children's book only is going to share part of the truth because it's a children's book. You know, it's, it's short, it's going to be a little bit whitewashed because it's for children and that kind of thing. And, and that's, that's fine. But then as your kids grow up and get into the high school ages, you need to teach them to be a little bit skeptical of the things that they read. So Michelle, what's something that you have learned or read about that you think, I'm glad I was skeptical about that because I learned more? Well, Vietnam is an extremely controversial war in United States history. We're using a lot of e examples from United, the United States because we're from the United States. But <laughs> the Vietnam War is very controversial. And one of the reasons it was so controversial is that reports started coming back from Vietnam about massacres that the soldiers, the American soldiers, had participated in. And these reports were true. 
they weren't lies, but it was spun so that it sounded like all American soldiers were participating in massacres. And the whole thing was corrupt. The whole thing was horrible. The very people we were supposedly supposed to be saving, we were going around killing in their villages. Okay, that It was spun so it sounded like all Americans were doing that. It was actually, in reality, a tiny portion of Americans. Most American soldiers were not doing that, by far. And it doesn't take away the importance of us knowing that truth to admit that, hey, that wasn't everyone who was doing it. We're not excusing what happened. But you do need to be aware of the whole picture and the little part that you're looking at. This is a good example of why it's important, because the Vietnam War happened during the lifetimes of people who are still alive today. Okay, So when those people came back from Vietnam... They were reviled, ridiculed, spit upon. Sometimes they couldn't get jobs. They couldn't get into schools. They had all kinds of social problems. Sometimes their families were angry with them. Their friends deserted them. It was really, really bad. And it affected real people in in real life. And that was because the American people were not skeptical when they read those news reports. They didn't think to themselves, now... It seems unlikely that all soldiers could be participating in this. No, they just had a gut emotional reaction to it and started hating all American soldiers, even though most of them were actually doing the opposite. They were going out of their way to help the people of Vietnam. There were soldiers that gathered clothing and food and had organized drives back home in the States for these people. They they had schools that they started in the bases for these kids, that these Vietnamese kids who were displaced. So there was a lot of good things happening, but that stuff didn't hit the news. So Michelle, when you're learning history, how would you say that you, in a practical way, are skeptical of authors and sources? In, in the same way that I mentioned the Learn to Dive in a Day courses. I was very skeptical of that, and I basically avoided it. I said, you know what, let's go to somewhere that has you know, a better reputation. How do you do that in a real way in your homeschool? How are you skeptical? What do you do? I think it takes practice. Okay, so so what you do is, first of all, you are looking for sensational statements, right? If something sounds really extreme, it probably is. Or universal. Yeah, or right? universal. If If all people are bad in this entire group, then it's probably not true. Okay, so for example, this is, this is again, another touchy subject because it's in fairly recent history, but the Nazis were a political party in Germany, okay? And whenever we want to insult someone nowadays, we call them a Nazi, right? <laughs> if we yeah. want to really insult them, we call them a Nazi. And basically what we have in our minds is that all Nazis were really evil, like essentially the epitome of evil. That's not actually true. Many, many people who belonged to the Nazi party belonged to it because they were trying to survive in a Germany that was so hostile that their family would also be rounded up and sent to an internment camp if they didn't join the Nazi party. Well, and furthermore, the Nazi party was a political party long before any of the atrocities started. That's true, too. So there were a lot of people who were affiliated and didn't even remain affiliated, actually, you know, who who left that when things turned. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden we should admire Nazis. I'm not no. saying that. no. But it is important to not just throw out universal statements and think that they are always true yeah. about people or events. If someone makes a claim that this entire group 
was super evil or this entire group was super wonderful or this one person did this remarkably horribly evil thing, then you might want to take a second look. It might be true. It's possible it's true, but it sounds extreme. So you should probably, you know, dig a little bit deeper, try to find some other sources to compare it to. Don't you think that the same is true of the flip side when we over emphasize someone's heroics we act like yeah. every single thing that a person did is virtuous yeah, and, and, heroic. and that, that has happened to a lot of the founding fathers of the united states yeah now that we find out that they made a mistake they've lost their hero status it's like somehow everything they did good is wiped out by the one bad thing yeah and anyway we should be skeptical either way right, right. We, we should be looking for well, what's going on here? Also, I think often you'll come across sources that disagree, and sometimes on some very basic things. The Japanese, at the opening of World War II, they invaded China. And the rape of Nanking is infamous in history. And the Japanese sources will tell you that the numbers were fairly low, like it was a few hundred rapes that happened. Well, the Chinese sources will tell you it was 20,000 to 40,000. So those are vastly different numbers. Both of them are agreeing that it happened, right? But those are vastly different numbers. So if you want to know the truth, you're going to have to dig deeper. You're going to have to find out what's really going on. And admit that you might never know for sure right. the number or the truth. You can take lessons from things that you don't have a complete understanding of, but you won't learn anything if you think you completely understand it when you don't. Right. So the skepticism is important. And, and again, it happens through practice. The more widely read you are, the easier and easier it gets to spot it because you have context to understand what you're reading in history. So anytime you see a blanket statement or something that seems too universal or too... In advertising, we tell it, call it too good to be true. But right. basically, you're looking for those kinds of things. Just be wary of the learn to dive in a day promises that you see as you're studying history. I had another interesting experience when I was a pretty new diver. I was going on one of my first really deep dives, and this was in open water, not in the pool. Normally, when I dove early on, I was diving with my husband, who was my dive partner. But in this particular situation, I was paired up with another woman who had learned to dive in my dive class, and she was really, really nervous about diving. And so she asked, can I go with you? She didn't want to go with her husband because her husband wanted to go deeper and do more. And she asked if I would kind of be her partner. And so our husbands went, and then I went with her. And we got down, and we were about at 60 feet below the surface, which is deep, but it's not super, super deep when you're diving. But at that level, it's dark. We had a compass course that we were supposed to do under the water. We were working on our compass skills under the water. And when we went down, she looked over at me in panic because her mask was extremely fogged up. And when you have a fogged up mask, it's hard. But when you have a fogged up mask in dark, deep waters, it's pretty much impossible. You're blind, right? Yeah, she was diving blind. And we're taught how to clear our mask. I was taught that in the pool from the very first day we worked on that every time. But she was super, super nervous about so clearing she, her she mask. She panicked a little bit. It involves taking off your mask entirely pretty much when you do it. Yeah. And she was really, really scared and she was panicking. So essentially, as she was diving, she was diving blind for a long time. And it terrified her. 
And I'm telling you, when we study history far too often, we are also diving blind. We should be terrified by that a little bit. So one of the big pitfalls of learning history is that it's really difficult to see into the past. It is. It's like having a fogged up mask sometimes. But we can clear our mask if we will take the time and make the effort to learn more about the surroundings, more about what's happening in the context of the culture that the person or the event was happening in. Because if we judge people by our world, that is a big pitfall. We cannot think that the entire world thinks the way we do or sees the things the way that we do or has the same values we do. And so you can have moral absolutes and still accept that there are different mores in cultures around the world and at different times around the world. So last week I came across an article that was about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She is extremely famous in the women's rights movement and pushed for women to be allowed to vote in the United States of America. And she's celebrated for that, as she should be. But this article was really interesting because the author made the claim that we should not celebrate Elizabeth Cady Stanton as a feminist because she wore dresses. And I was like, wow, (laughs) wow. So first of all, I wear dresses today in our modern day. I enjoy wearing dresses sometimes. A lot of women do. (laughs) But this was making the claim that if she wore a dress, then she was doing that because men made her wear a dress And so she couldn't have actually been a feminist by any real definition of the word feminist if she wore a dress. I was floored by that. I felt like, wow, that author was completely applying her definition of what feminism means today to somebody who lived a long time ago and whom she doesn't know if she just enjoyed wearing dresses or not anyway. Elizabeth Cady Stanton lived in the 1800s, so it's been... 150 years since the pictures of her wearing dresses were taken, right? And all women wore dresses in that culture. It was just normal. And wearing a dress does not make you a lesser human being. There is nothing about that that makes you unequal to men. I mean, that's just that's just silly. Like to even put that on her as being a requirement of being a feminist. But the author of that article had a fogged up mask. She was only seeing what feminism means to her right now in her lifetime. She's somebody who I doubt wears dresses because she probably feels strongly that that's a symbol of anti-feminism. It's interesting because Elizabeth Cady Stanton is one of those people that made feminism possible. Like she's the founder of it, you know, (laughs) her and other women that were in that same movement. So I think that you can look at someone and separate them from some of their, the quirks of their time and still see them for who they were. For example, Plato embraced slavery as a normal and desirable condition. It was just normal. That's what everyone did. Maybe we wish that he had questioned it, but he didn't because it was just part of his culture. It was just normal. I doubt it even crossed his mind to question it. And there are so many things in our world that it doesn't cross our minds to question because it's just how things are. So we need to judge people by the standards of their time, at least somewhat. Like we need to give them a little bit of allowances. We need to accept that some of the things that we see in history aren't going to be exactly like they are for us because those people lived 
in a time and place, and we need to understand the context of their time and place. And that doesn't mean that we're accepting the way that they chose to live for our own lives. It just means that we can have a more balanced view. Instead of having a fogged up mask and only seeing what we see right in front of our faces, we can unfog the mask and accept that, wow, there was a lot going on that maybe I don't have the experience of. On the other hand, sometimes we do need to judge people regardless of their culture and time. And I think Hitler is a good example of that. We talked about the Nazis a bit. And he was part of a militaristic tradition stemming back for centuries in Germany where they believed that might made right and that racial purity was desirable. He was the tail end of a very long tradition of that set of beliefs. He took it much further than anyone had been able to take it before in Germany. But if we excuse him for that, I don't think any of us are feeling comfortable about doing that. We believe that, okay, Hitler's views about racial purity were actually fundamentally morally wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think you can, you, you need to draw a line. There's a difference between fundamental morals and between putting people in context in their culture. Exactly. So we can condemn Plato for having slaves maybe, or for the slavery among the Greeks, but we can't dismiss him entirely just because he never spoke out against slavery. And we can't condemn Elizabeth Cady Stanton for not wearing pants when that was just not done in her culture. And that's not even the, the issue of wearing pants is not even a moral issue. That is simply a cultural norm. It's just a different style of clothing. <laughs> so we all live immersed in our culture and in our belief systems no matter what they are, whether they're religious or not religious or whatever our belief systems are, we become so heavily immersed in them that we actually become fogged and can't see our own culture, much less other people's. There are things that we're doing now that I think someday people in the future will condemn. I think that's a really interesting question to ask ourselves to help us understand what our fogged lenses are exactly. For example, today we are driving around in cars that use gasoline. I won't be too surprised if not far into the future, we are villainizing the fact that right now we are driving cars that use gasoline. Our children and our grandchildren will look back at us and think, how could they have done such a horrible thing? How often have we driven down the road and, you know, you see the diesel truck that has a puff of black smoke it, coming it out of it. Worse it looks worse than it is, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but but truthfully, we're sitting here driving these cars that use gasoline and put carbon into the atmosphere and everything else. And we're feeling okay with ourselves for the most part. I mean, as a child, did you even consider that? No, it didn't cross my mind back then. And in, even in the, in the 1980s. <laughs> I would say 10 years ago, even when I was an adult driver, I never even thought about it other than, oh man, I'm, out, I'm almost out of gas. I need to go yeah. get some gas in the car. But as things are changing and we're deciding, oh, we could do better. It is going to change the way that we see things. And I'm pretty certain that there will be a day where they look back on our time and say, can you believe that anyone drove around using gasoline in their cars? That is atrocious. That is horrible. And yet, how could we do otherwise? Like The way that our culture is set up, the way that our society is set up, just our infrastructure, everything. We have to drive cars to get from point A to point B. At least most of us do. Some people live in cities and they use other forms of transportation. But most of us 
it's a requirement. We really need to drive a car to go about our daily lives. You and I couldn't really get to any of the places we need to. We live far enough out. We don't have public transportation. Right. And, and at the very least, I need the UPS guy to drive his truck to my house and deliver me things. Yeah. So. <laughs> and even in our area that we live in right now, even if we could afford an electric vehicle, which I can't, but even if we could, we don't have the infrastructure in place at this point to be able to do it where we live. There's not a plug-in spot at our grocery store. In some areas of America, there now are, but not where we live. And that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile goal, but I really feel sad that someday the choices I'm making right now in that realm are going to make me a villain. And I think we need to look at those kinds of things that are happening to us right now, and I'm sure that you can think of others, of other examples, of things that are happening in our culture that someday we will condemn. And realize that we are doing that to other people who lived in the past. They're not standing on this hill that we are and looking back. Hindsight is always easy, right? It's easy to see what they should have done. But when you're in the middle of it, it's either impossible or sometimes it's even difficult. You, you don't even realize the, some of the things that you're doing that someday people will be like, how could they have done that? So I think it is important for us to take the lessons that we can learn from history. But if we go too far in judging people by our modern day, very location specific standards, then we're putting on a fogged up mask. We're not really seeing the full picture. I'm going to choose to take Elizabeth Cady Stanton with her dress and the vote she gave me. Okay, so the four big lessons to take away from this are don't stay on the surface. Read widely, check out primary sources wherever they are available, and don't stay in one location. Don't stay in your little comfort zone. Find many points of view. You want to have things that challenge what you thought you knew. And that can be scary, but you got to go to the new spot and try new things and be brave. Then be really skeptical of authors and their points of view and some sources. Be thinking about, is that really true all the time when you're reading things? Finally, put history into context and judge people by the time and the place that they lived in and don't be so harsh about some of the things that you think they should have been doing when your own life isn't going to be looked at as blameless in the future. Keep that in context. So get rid of those fogs and try to see more clearly. As you learn to really dive deep into history... It is truly going to open up an ocean of knowledge to you. When I look at diving in the pool now, that seems so boring. It almost seems pitiful to me. I wouldn't even waste my time going scuba diving in a swimming pool because I've experienced so much more than that. And that's what you're going to find as you dive deep into history also. You're going to see things from new points of view and consider things that you never considered. And you're going to be able to apply what you see in your life, but you're also going to be able to understand the historical context of the people that you're learning about and the events that you're studying. When you start to see things from lots of points of view, read things from lots of authors, it's like opening up this amazing ocean that provides you with things that you never imagined when you were just sitting in the pool. 
Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating wherever you listen. Ratings and comments help people find happy family-style homeschooling. Visit us at layersoflearning.com, at Instagram, and on our Facebook group. And make sure to tune in next month for the next podcast. In the meantime, we wish you happiness in your homeschool. Have fun learning! learning.